Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) Our first tale tonight comes from author K. Banning Kellum, entitled Secret Bar. Every city claims to have them, and every city will tell you that theirs is the best. Most larger places will claim to having quite a few. And of course, speaking of secret bars, or in some cases, secret clubs, they generally fall under a simple concept. A bar with no name out front, where a secret password is required to get in. This is what started my obsession, and may have cost me my soul. The year was 1979. I had turned 21 earlier that year and had already done up all the new freedoms that had come with that age. I'd done bars, strip clubs, casinos, you name it. At first it was amazing, because for years I had felt like a kid, like some wet-behind-the-ears idiot that the rest of the world sort of just patted on the head. 
Even after turn 21, things remained at nine. People would hear that I was 21 and treat me not like an adult, but as a new adult. Like a grown-up that still needed grown-ups. I was annoyed. I worked downtown in a dreary office job inputting data. The nice thing about it, though, were my hours, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. For a single guy in his early 20s, it was perfect. I got to sleep in every day, and I'd get off work just in time to take the quick walk from the New Orleans CBD, cross the Canal Street, and voila, I was in the French Quarter. Land of booze and women, lots of fun times, was spent down there. But, as I said, even that began to get born, really born. So I began to research secret bars, and I found a few right away, and most of them were just as boring as the regular bars. One in particular, called Mythique, was located up a narrow stairwell, accessible only through a tiny door located under the bar downstairs. Once I got up there, though, it was just another bar. Clientele was a bit more pretentious, but in the end, it was the same thing. A bar, drinks, people, and terrible music. I remember one night I was at home in my tiny apartment, rifling through the yellow pages, searching for more secrets in my city that I was now old enough to exploit. I kept finding entries for the same boring places I always went to, just then I heard my mail slot open and the telltale thunk of letters being deposited outside my apartment door. I checked mine and noticed something unusual, an unmarked blank envelope. Out of curiosity, I opened it first and was met immediately by a handwritten heading which read Secret Bar. Now, I was sure I hadn't asked anyone I knew for help and I didn't recognize the handwriting. The rest of the letter was simple and short and read something like this. Secret New Orleans Bar. Looking for a journey? Not afraid of hell? Not too shy for heaven? Then come visit us. Be in Jackson Square tonight at 2 a.m. Wear a black shirt and gray pants. Have a cup of coffee in your hand. Seat yourself at the third bench. This is your only invitation Miss it, and you will never be invited again. P.S. Come alone. Tell no one. That was the end of the letter. I was lucky that my job required me to wear a suit because it just so happened I had a pair of gray slacks. I pulled on a black t-shirt and realized that I actually looked pretty good. I figured this could be a prank, but even if it was, even if it turned out to be nothing... I'd go out, have a few drinks anyway, maybe even bring some someone home with me. I didn't have to go into work the next day, so the night could turn out to be a fun anyway. However, even though I was bored, inexperienced as a 21-year-old, I wasn't stupid. This could also be a trick, a trap, or something worse. So I called my best friend Mike. I told him that I was going to go out with some strangers from work and that I wasn't sure about him. I told him I'd call him by 4 a.m., and if I didn't, for him to call and check up on me. I told him I'd be in the quarter, Mike, 
I had to be up for work at 4 a.m. so it wouldn't put him out of his way to call me after he woke up. I left my apartment at around 1.30 a.m. only lived about 15 minutes from downtown. But I figured I'd make sure I was on time. By 1.55 a.m., I was sitting on the third bench in Jackson Square, sipping my coffee and awaiting. At 2 a.m., the cathedral bells rang out twice, and I received a tap on the shoulder. A gorgeous woman was sitting next to me, and I thought to myself, oh, this is too cliché to be real. To me, she exemplified the concept of a hidden bar. Mid-twenties, mysterious, extremely attractive. Yeah, she was from the bar. I knew it from the start. I'm Jody, said the woman. Well, at least you're not a raven or Lilith or some other stereotypical dark name, I replied, but I did so with a smile. She returned my smile with one of her own. No, always been Jody. You must be Kurt, right? She knew my name, and nice touch, of course, but then again, my name was on the mailbox where I received the letter, so if this was her attempt at a trick, I was one step ahead. Yeah, Kurt, that's me, I replied. I guess you're here to show me to the secret bar? Only if you're ready to journey to hell or heaven, depending on your tastes, she answered. We like to consider this to be... The first back-out point for new clients. You can decline the invitation now and go home, or to some other bar, or wherever you'd like. Only be warned that no other invitation will ever come to you again. I considered this and decided that, since it was already 2 a.m. and I was out, dressed and full of coffee, I had little reason to decline. Besides, I wanted to see this place. Lead on, Miss Jody, I replied. She stood up and began to walk ahead of me at a rapid pace, I might add. We walked in silence for some time, weaving deep into the quarter past Bourbon Street, past all the loud and drunk tourists, past the warm and safe flights, the cop cars, the music from the bars. Before long, we were in the dark part of the quarter, which was mostly residential, and the streets were nearly empty. Suddenly, Jody stopped and walked up the stoop leading to a private residence. She fiddled with a set of keys, opened the door, and gestured for me to follow her inside. Wait, is is this someone's house? This is the house where the dead scream in silence, where the walls rot, where the pain becomes pleasure, where pleasure becomes death. This is the house of din. He who dwells upon the black star. Enter. I thought this was the greatest pitch for a bar I had ever heard. I figured it was rehearsed, but she had the conviction with which she told it, and it was impressive. I had no idea who Din was, and I certainly didn't know about any black star, but I did have a desire to push on. She walked me into the house, which was empty. No furniture, no nothing. Now, French Quarter real estate isn't cheap, so if the business owners had been renting a house just to serve as a cover for a bar, they clearly took themselves seriously. 
This might not be so boring after all, I thought. What happened next was strange. She turned me toward a small hallway with an elevator, one of the old-fashioned ones, with the metal grating and manual doors. Now, I know that some houses years ago had elevators. However, this one only appeared to go down. Also, buildings in New Orleans, especially homes, don't usually have basements as we're below sea level. In spite of the oddity of the situation, I stepped in, but just as I did, Jody stopped me once more. This is your second backout chance, same as before. You can turn around and leave, no harm, no foul. Push the button, I replied, pointing at the down button and stepped in. The elevator ride felt long, really long. At first, I was thinking that this was impossible. No one builds down in this city. Hell, we even have to bury our dead above the ground. As far as I could see, though, we were going down. I could see wood and metal in the elevator walls going past us, and this eventually gave way to stone. I was about to question this when something occurred to me. Nice trick, I said. Trick? Jody asked. Yeah, the elevator is rumbling in place while a rolling graphic goes by outside to make it appear as if we're going down, right? Because while I'm no expert on elevators, I would say that we'd have to be at least 20 stories below the city right now. And I know that just isn't possible. You're right, she replied, grinning. We aren't 20 stories below the city. We are by now at least 2,000 stories below, if you're using an eight-foot-tall story as your measurement. I wanted to say something about how that was a lie, how it had to be a lie, that we hadn't been writing that long, and the amount of depth wasn't possible on a tiny elevator like this. However, I figured this was all part of the act, like her whole speech about the house of din and all that. I didn't want to become too obnoxious or pushy. She might end up asking me to leave, figuring I would ruin the scene for other patrons. Instead, I just smiled and decided to play along with the elaborate act. Fake or not, this was by far the most ambitious effort I had ever seen put forth for a drinking establishment. Before I had a chance to say another word, the elevator stopped. Jody stepped in front of the doors, but before she opened them up, she turned back to me. Now, this is your final chance to back out. If you wish, I'll take you back. However, once I open these doors, you will be in hell. You may find your way back to the surface tonight, but some find it impossible to leave. Some stay forever. In the interest of free will and fair play, I am bound by the Council of Nod to offer you this final chance to return to your life. Choose now. Amazing speech, Jody, I replied. Really great. You guys clearly put some thought into this. Yeah, yeah, I want to go to this bar. She smiled and opened the doors. Inside, I noted a small, ancient-looking door at the end of the narrow hallway. There were no lights. I could only see by the small electric light in the elevator and the light coming from the door ahead. I walked forward, and as soon as I stepped off of the elevator, the heat 
hit me. It wasn't unbearable, but if anyone has ever experienced being in an attic on a summer day with no ventilation, then you'll have an idea how this felt. The air was thick beyond description. In an instant, I was covered in sweat, and I knew if I stayed in this hallway for too long, I would pass out. I turned to look back and saw the elevator already heading back up. From what I could see, there was no button to call it back down either. I guess Jody wasn't kidding when she said that was my last chance to turn back. Crossed my fingers that the bar would be air-conditioned and walked forward into the light. What happened over the next couple of hours is largely a blur. I will tell it as best I can. I entered the bar. It was small, very small, about the size of a bedroom. There was a single wooden bar, three bar stools pushed up to it, and three small tables in the corner area. The room was poorly lit. A single small light bulb hanging from the cord provided the only light. However, it was well lit enough to see everything, and sitting right near the bulb seemed the most logical. There was a small shelf behind the bar with a typical setup, liquor bottles in front of a mirror. There were five others in the room, plus the bartender. I saw a voluptuous, dark-haired girl dressed all in black and made up like a doll sitting at one of the tables, sipping a drink with a rather plain-dressed man. There were two gentlemen at the other bar table, one wearing a business suit, the other wearing that awful cowboy attire that was popular in almost all walks of life, even secret bars. At the opposite side of the bar, there was another woman, average in appearance, probably in her mid-thirties, smoking a cigarette. There was no music playing. The walls appeared to be carved from solid oak. The bartender, who now was uh, straight out of a bygone era, white shirt, black pants, suspenders, and bow tie, like something out of the roaring twenties, the unpleasant here, which I had noticed before, persisted. It wasn't as torturous as it had been in the hallway, but it was still plenty awful. I figured liquor would only make me harder, but I was here now, so I figured I would test the waters. Now, as for the drink selection, none of the bottles were recognizable, none were labeled. There was no beer either, no name brands, no cash register, no bar mat. This place was as simple as imaginable. After a moment, the bartender spoke to me. Welcome to hell, he announced, smiling. Nice name, sort of expected it, though, I said, trying not to sound rude or pretentious. They had put on a great show thus far, after all, but still, calling this place hell? Really? Too predictable. Well, the tile's relative, he retorted. Hell is the term you're familiar with. Shall I call it something else? He didn't seem to be joking or annoyed. Nah, hell's fine. How about a drink? Jack and Coke, please, I said. No Jack here, no Coke either, he answered at once. What do you have, then? I asked. Well, most people here have a drink we call regret. It can also serve you loneliness, or if you're feeling particularly bold, our house special is damnation. 
Wow, you guys really are playing up the hell thing. Okay, serve me some regret, please. He handed me a drink poured from a brown bottle. Tasted amazing, too. I figured it had to be bourbon and wish I had some Coke to mix with it. Apparently there was no ice here. I chuckled. Of course, not ice in hell. What was I thinking? The drink was tasty, though, and the buzz hit me quick. I ordered up a loneliness and began to look around at my fellow patrons. None of them you know, seemed to even notice me. The dark-haired girl was cute, though, so I picked up my drink and decided to walk over to her. When suddenly the woman sitting at the bar began to whimper. I'm so thirsty. Can I please have some water? She pleaded to the bartender. <laughs> no, ma'am. He replied with that same stupid grin. No water in hell, not even a small amount. Have another cigarette, though, and wash it down with some hard liquor. No more smoking. My mouth is too dry. She continued begging, No more liquor. Water, please. Instead of handing her water, he held out an unlit cigarette. It was then that I noticed the overflowing ashtray, the size of a damn punch bowl, sitting next to her. It was full of butts. There had to be more than a thousand of them in there. And she smoked them all herself. I strained my eyes and studied her closely. Her lips were badly blistered. She'd been in it for a while. The bartender patiently held out the cigarette, that same never-ending grin plastered on his face, until she finally sighed and took it. He produced a lighter and she took a drag. She began to cough violently, gagging too. I decided to chime in. Hey, man, she, she doesn't look so hot. I, I really don't think she needs another smoke. She looks like she's dying of thirst, too. Call the elevator, man. She's had enough, I think. The bartender turned his big smile on me. Ooh, old Nancy here. Nah, Nancy's a trooper, man. Smokes a couple packs a day, and as far as her thirst, well, she knew this place was a thirsty sort of dive before she walked in the door, but she wanted to be here. She is getting exactly what she asked for. I walked over to Nancy and placed my hand on her shoulder. Ma'am, if you want to get out of here, I'll walk you over to the elevator. You don't look so great right now. I tried to sound as concerned as someone my age could sound. Nancy cast a glance at me and smiled. Oh, I'm fine, just fine, Nancy said, but her mouth quivered as she spoke. The bartender was watching us like a hawk. He was still smiling, but somehow it didn't seem so friendly anymore. Everything okay? he asked, beaming like a used car salesman. Nancy shakily replied, yes. The bartender turned around, and in that second, Nancy gripped my arm hard, pulled me into the smog that was her breath, and whispered, Leave while you can. She rasped so quietly I strained to hear her. Her breath was like a chimney. She must have been chain-smoking for days. I smoked, and so did most of my friends, and even on nights when we would chain-smoke and pound booze until the sun rose. None of us even became that toxic. I walked over to the man in the business suit. 
He at least appeared sane. Hey there, sir. I, I think that lady over there needs help, I said to him. The man looked at me and laughed. <laughs> we all need help, kid, he shouted. We're in hell, after all. I looked over at the buxom girl with the black hair just in time to see her begin to cut herself deep and hard from the looks of it. The plain-dressed man sitting next to her began to laugh in a high-pitched tone, almost a giggle, and that was when I noticed that he was pleasuring himself. Only not in the sense that we all do at home from time to time. No, what remained of his manhood was raw and bloody, tore away in places, yet he kept at it. Stop that, I screamed at him. Look at what you're doing to yourself. They looked at me, and I noticed that the girl was crying, but also smiling. Her eyes were practically begging for self-inflicted pain to stop, yet she just kept cutting. I had seen enough. I reached over and attempted to pull the knife out of her hand. Just then, I felt a strong grip on my shoulder, stronger than anything I've ever felt in my life. It was the bartender. He'd come around the bar to grab me. No, 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 sir, he screamed in my ear. Every patron of hell gets to enjoy their treats without judgment. After all, judgment has already been passed. We exist beyond that now. Let her cut. She loves it, after all. Can't you see how she loves it? She's smiling, ear to ear. And the bartender dragged me back to my stool and with great speed was somehow back behind the bar again. From behind the counter, he carried on. You wanted secrets, right, Kurt? He continued, pouring liquor into a glass. You were bored and wanted more. That's what you came for. Now get your drink and drink it before I get angry. Through it all, the bartender never stopped smiling. He slammed a glass, filled to the brim with murky liquid, down before me. He grabbed my arm and began to squeeze. The pain quickly became unbearable. My mind began to race. This was no bar. This was something, but not a bar. I wasn't ready to believe I was actually in hell, but whatever it was, it wasn't good. Drink, sir. Drink it now, the bartender screamed again. Fearing I would pass out from the pain, I gulped down the foul contents in front of me. It tasted horrible. I couldn't describe it then, and I can't now, but it was fierce. He let go of me, and suddenly the room got much hotter. The one light in the room began to flicker, and suddenly I was afflicted by knowledge. Things I didn't want to know. Things that no one would want to know. My mother had an affair, and the man I had grown up calling Dad was in fact not my father at all. A brother, he died. I never knew that. My boss hated me. My grandfather committed suicide. For years I was led to believe he had died naturally. My mother had planned to abort me, but changed her mind because she couldn't afford the procedure. I was destined to die alone. My wife, a woman I would meet in six years and fall madly in love with, would die in a car crash with my three-year-old son in the back seat. Nothing I could do would change any of it. 
I would go blind in my 60s from a work-related accident. There were currently 34 people in the world at that moment, some of who I thought of as friends, who either wanted me to die or didn't care if I did. They despised me. Not one. Not my mother. Not my father. No one had ever loved me at all. Those were just a few of the secrets that suddenly hit me. There were thousands, maybe millions more, but by then my mind couldn't process them all. There were some things, things about me, things about people I knew that were so dark that I am thankful I repressed them because to dwell on the information for even a second longer would have reduced me to madness. Frantically, I looked around the bar. The woman, Nancy, was still smoking, only now her throat was smoldering, the center of it glowing as illuminated by burning embers. She was clearly in the worst pain of her existence, but she continued to take puff after puff of her cigarette. Each time she did, the flames within her throat grew in their intensity. Just then, something to my right caught my attention, a small black figure standing directly beside me. It was maybe five feet tall, had jet black skin. Its eyes stood out, human-like but far too bright. Not exactly glowing, but bright enough to stand out from the onyx sheen of its face. In contrast to its charred skin, where it's very white and very sharp teeth. Atop its head were two small horns. Somehow, I knew it was Din, and I was in his house. I looked towards the door, but it was gone. The heat had risen sharply and kept on increasing. The secrets continued popping into my mind, each worse than the one before. Entire dimensions of my soul were being revealed to me, all of them horrible. Just then, my phone rang. I don't know how I heard it across space and time, beyond the veil, but I heard it. The ring was muffled and echoed in my mind, something from my world, something from up above. It grabbed my attention, and in that moment, the secrets slowed their pace. I looked at my wristwatch. It was 4 a.m. Mike. It was Mike. Mike was calling to check up on me. His name, Mike. Yes, I have a friend named Mike, my best friend. The more I focused on things that were real, the more stable things became around me. The secrets nearly stopped. The macabre scene transformed as well. Nancy was back to just smoking again. The girl with the black hair wasn't cutting the sinister face of Din. It had also retreated back into the shadows. Mike. Mike, my oldest friend. Yes, we we grew up together. We rode our bikes together. We had sleepovers, pizza parties. And the more I focused on the real world, if I could just... The door was back. I bolted for it. Stop! You had your chance to back out, screamed the bartender, and I looked back just in time to see him leap over the bar behind me. I shot through the doors and back into the tiny, impossibly hot corridor. The bartender burst through the door and did the only thing that came to mind. 
If thinking about the real world weakened this place, then perhaps a real link to the real world would break it. In my mind's eye, as I imagined, picking up my phone, my home phone, instantly the voice of my best friend, who was calling from the safety of his apartment, greeted my ears. Vividly, I pictured myself cradling the phone against my ear and Mike on the other end. I could even hear music in the background. Real music. Mike! Call the cops. I'm in real trouble here. I screamed into the phone. What? I can barely hear you, man, he said. Your connection sucks. The bartender was fast approaching, still grinning. I had one last idea. In my mind, I pushed the speaker button on my home phone. In a moment, Mike's voice a product of the living world, owned by someone who had not made a deal to enter some level of hell, flooded the hallway. I have no idea how, but it worked. Mike came in loud and clear. The bartender halted. He is not allowed to know of this place, he shrieked. He cannot have any contact without being invited, even voice contact. It violates the Council of Nod. That was when the final blow to the bar from hell was delivered. I heard Mike, in his sleepy yet concerned voice, say, What is the council of Nod? Contact had been made. Whatever rules governed this place had been broken. Suddenly, the elevator came down. The bartender, ever smiling, glared at me. My apologies, sir, but You have violated the rules. You are no longer welcome at this bar. Please leave. Jody was standing in the elevator, I entered. The effects of the drink I had consumed were gone. No more secrets. My connection to Mike had somehow been disconnected. However, the effects were enough. Jody and I ascended in silence... When we reached the surface, she walked me out of the house onto the stoop, and she spoke. You may think you have won tonight, but you didn't. You had a chance to ride this elevator up as well as down. Your heart wanted secrets instead of happiness, hence it descended. You could have chosen ascension, and everything you could ever have possibly desired would have been yours. So go on, feel proud. Though you've achieved little, we like our mortals proud. Yours are the type that always find their way back to hell. Goodbye, Jody, I replied, and good riddance. And I walked away. When I returned home that night, I remembered many of the secrets. Over the years, upon waking, they have slipped away, slowly at first, one by one until at last I slipped back into total amnesia. If it weren't for the fact that I had written down those I listed earlier, I surely would have forgotten them entirely. However, when I read them now, they don't seem like secrets anymore. They're more like worst-case scenarios, probabilities dreamed up by Din himself, which I refuse to believe in. Of course, I called the police the very next day. I wanted to help those people down there, had to dress up the story a bit. I told the cops that I was led there by Jody after meeting her in the quarter. I left out the part about the place honestly being a level of hell and simply described it as a basement 
where people were being tortured. Cops got a warrant and went in. The house was empty, as I told them it would be. However, no elevator was found. The cops did say, however, that there was a large area that appeared as if it may had once contained an old-fashioned, but it was long gone now and had been converted into a walking closet. The house itself was bank-owned and still on the market, listed as a foreclosure. For a few years, I'd go down to Jackson Square around 2 a.m., hoping to catch Jody luring another victim into the house. However, I never saw her again. Years went on. I did marry. And no, my wife was never killed in a car accident. We don't have kids yet, though. Perhaps when I violated the contract, the Council of Nod or whatever, I somehow broke that cycle. I'll never know, but I will be careful. After I'm finished telling the story, I plan to burn the list of secrets that I've written down. Of course, I could always listen to this account later, but I won't. And in time, hopefully, I will forget them, too. I never confronted my mother about her abortion plans or asked who my real father was. Those secrets seemed so real, but then again, Satan isn't called the father of lies for nothing. I'm not sure if Din is Satan or just a lesser version of him, but either way, I doubt he is the honest type. I recount these events as a warning. A warning to be careful when going out in search of the unknown. Some things are kept secret for a reason. And to know them is to know too much. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our final story for this evening is brought to you by L. Chan, entitled Cracks in a City. This is a warning. My best friend tried to warn me I didn't listen. Now all that's left is a shell, a broken man. All I need is for one of you to understand, and I've done my job. Owen was my pal. Maybe the best one, if I had to rank them. One of the good guys. He didn't have many friends. We met in high school, drawn together by a mutual love of turn-based strategy games. Master of Orion, Heroes of Might, and magic. 
Owen was an absolute beast at those games. He had a queer talent for memorizing patterns, statistics, and maps. He'd devour games like a man possessed, teasing out exploits and secrets while the rest of us were still getting our butts handed to us by the AI. Even five years out of college, Owen remained thin as a rake, his eyes looking perpetually surprised through thick spectacles. Life happened to the rest of our little circle of friends. We went corporate, chased the dream, ran the rat race. We never kept in touch like we should have, other than meeting up every few months for a meal. I gathered that he worked in a bank somewhere, cruising along and meeting his targets without excelling. The last time I saw Owen was a little over four months ago. He had arranged to meet me at one of our favorite bars in a quiet part of town. At least it used to be until jobs and the pressure of grown-up life just expanded and expanded, filling up my life like so much bubble wrap. I got to the bar first, or so I thought. I searched the crowd fruitlessly until my eyes focused on a lone figure in a scruffy coat sitting at the bar. I had to swallow a gasp as the man turned around. I hadn't seen Owen in the better part of a year, but he looked like he'd aged a dozen. He was thin before, but now it was nothing more than skin and bones. His cheeks were sunken in, unshaven, with a wispy beard framing his mouth. He smelled of sweat and grime and worse. One thing hadn't changed. His eyes still blazed with a fierce intelligence. He gestured toward the seat next to him. When he spoke, the words came out in a rush. He'd found something, he said. He'd found a, a warning scribbled upon an old map he'd seen in a library. It pointed down a street somewhere in the city that he hadn't been able to find on modern maps or even Google. Still, he hunted it down and found a back alley, a nameless lane between two buildings that shouldn't have been there. Intrigued, he'd gone back to the library and found another two maps with warnings in handwriting distinct from the first. They were published years apart, yet seemed to be warning readers away from similar nameless streets. Owen grew more animated as he spoke, gesturing wildly, a small crust of white spittle forming at the corner of his mouth. He'd found more of the lanes the maps warned about, cracks between buildings that shouldn't have been there, hidden alleys. I saw the familiar glint of obsession in his eyes. He'd found something special, a hidden system, and he wouldn't rest until he had laid bare its secrets. He stopped short, his eyes widening at something through the window across the busy street. I turned around to see what had spooked him, but the throng of people at the bar and the street blocked me. Hands shaking, he teased out a tattered map from his pocket. It was covered in his handwriting, too small to make out by the light of the bar counter. He marked a spot and hurriedly folded up the map, which quickly disappeared into his pocket. It's big. Something big, something hidden. 
I've almost got all the places. I'm almost there. I can't move fast enough. I'll need something faster. So that's what he wanted. Just to borrow my car for the weekend. I gave him a look that was equal parts pity and derision. Pity for the friend I knew, and derision for the madman twitching before me. It wasn't the first time I'd let him drive my car, but I had no idea what had gotten into Owen, and I wasn't even sure that I'd get my vehicle back in one piece. In the end, his plant of wheedling got the better of me, and I agreed to let him have my car for the weekend. I wish to God I hadn't. I didn't hear anything from Owen that Saturday, or the day after. He didn't pick up his mobile the entire night. I had to get a cab on Monday morning and plan to take my mounting frustration out on Owen after work. Friendship be damned. His antics seemed more like college hijinks than something an adult should be playing at. I checked my phone as I left my apartment. A text from Owen. Car at my place. I was wrong. Burn map. Leave nothing behind. Don't come after me. I was sufficiently unnerved by the message to leave work early. I hadn't been to Owen's apartment in years, but I still remembered the way. I saw my car parked out front, a cup of coffee in the cup holder, and a huge map of the city, densely annotated, unfolded on the passenger seat. I made my way up the stairs. The door to the apartment was open. Owen wasn't inside. His mother was. Her face crumpled with a grief that no parent should know. Owen's home was a wreck, his mental decline clearly reflected in his apartment. Maps, photographs, and sheets of paper covered in his handwriting blanketed every possible surface. Between gulping sobs, she explained how she'd just come back from the morgue to identify his body. He'd been in a pretty nasty hit-and-run accident the morning before. The cop said he must have been dragged for quite a distance. Facial identification was impossible. She only managed to identify him through his personal effects and a tattoo on his upper arm. Or, at least, a tattoo that used to be on his upper arm. The accident had sheared a chunk of flesh right off of him and she had to identify pieces of her son's body laid out on the cold metal of a gurney. Owen's father and brother came by with the funeral director then. I excused myself, leaving the family to the grief. As his friend, I should have offered my help, but I needed to leave the house. Owen had been found on Sunday morning. I whipped out my phone to verify what I already knew. He tested me at 3 a.m. on Monday morning. My head was still spinning when I got into my car. The shock of Owen's sudden passing and the chill left by the text message this morning danced nauseatingly in my head. Was the conversation in the bar all I had to remember him by? I unfolded the map. Owen's spidery writing covered almost every available space. He'd been writing with an energy and speed which turned his usually neat script into an illegible scrawl. So forceful in places that the cheap ballpoint pen 
had punched through the paper. It marked out dozens of locations on the map with crude stars, each accompanied by annotated times and dates. The rest of the text made no sense. There were scribbled symbols that didn't match any language that I knew of. The snatches of English that I could decipher made no more sense than the symbols, products of Owen's obviously addled mind. They watched the cracks, nameless streets, secret kings and queens of the city. They sing to the dead. They eat their lost. The meaningless text still sent a chill down my spine. The depths of my friend's madness shocked me. I couldn't fathom why he would ask me to destroy the map. Lost in my troubled thoughts, I started my car. A polite chime snapped me from my reverie. It came from a shiny black slab on my dashboard. A GPS unit. Not mine. Owens. A strange thing for him to own since he didn't have a car to start with. I looked at the tiny LCD screen. I was at a location that Owen had marked out. His home? No, it was slightly off, across the street. It looked to be in the middle of a building, or a shop maybe. The streets were empty of both pedestrians and cars, but something felt out of place. No, the street wasn't totally empty. There was a small lane, practically just a crack between two buildings right next to my car. A waifish teenage girl was standing there, dressed in tatty jeans and a plain, threadbare t-shirt, far too thin for the icy winter weather. No shoes, either. She wore a look of intense focus on her face, her dark, piercing eyes staring upwards towards Owen's apartment. Her face was perfectly formed, pale, but covered in streaks of dirt. Her blonde hair matted into crude deadlocks. She seemed perfectly at ease in the cold, as though she could feel my eyes on her. Her head snapped downwards, and she affixed me with her mesmerizing gaze. I felt transfixed like a butterfly pinned to a corkboard. Her bright pink tongue snaked out from between her dirty lips, and the pointy tip ran across her lips in anticipation. I looked back at the GPS unit. There shouldn't have been an alley where she was standing. It should have been a continuous block of buildings. When I looked up, she was gone again. Unnerved by the nameless lane and the vanishing girl, I drove off a little faster than I should have. I must have driven at least five blocks when I heard the little chime from my dashboard again. Another star in the map. Same as before. A lane existed where there shouldn't have been a break in between the buildings. I nearly slammed on the brakes in shock when I saw the girl again. There was no way she could have made the distance between my last stop and this one on foot. I racked my brain for a logical explanation as the car cruised by. A sister? Or did she have a car on a parallel street? I found her giving me that same intense look, a familiar, hungry look. It had to be the same girl. She craned her neck to follow my car as I drove by like a snake staring down a mouse. I watched her shrinking into the rearview mirrors for as long as I could. Then I floored the accelerator, trying to get as far from her as possible. Rubber squealed on the black asphalt. 
I put about seven blocks between us when the polite chime from my dashboard sounded again. Adrenaline pumped through my system. My gaze swept across the empty streets. There she was again. It had to be the same girl. She caught my gaze with her own piercing look and smiled at me. Now, it wasn't a smile. She pulled her lips up and back and bared her straight white teeth. But there was neither humor nor warmth in the expression. It brought to mind the image of a baboon or wolf facing down something small and helpless. She abruptly turned and scuttled down the almost hidden alley. I stopped the car. Owen had found something. I hadn't done right by him in the last few days, so I owed him at least enough to learn how he died. I rounded the corner mere seconds after the girl. The alley was empty. Rough cement walls stretched to the sky, blocking out the tired light of the evening sun. She had vanished in the scant seconds it had taken me to get to the mouth of the tiny, nameless alley. My pulse quickened as I made my way down the tight corridor. My walk turned into a trot and the trot into a sprint. By the time I had reached the end of the end of the street, my chest was heaving, constricted by bands of hot iron. My breath steamed in the cold evening air. She wasn't there. There weren't any alcoves or windows or turnoffs anywhere down the alley. I hit the end of the lane and peered down the adjacent street. No trace of the girl and no alleyways she could have turned down. No doors or windows she could have climbed through. Nothing except the empty street. With a familiar car parked by the side of the road. My car. I had walked a hundred yards through a straight alley and wound up back where I started. I felt the world spin around me. I had put my hand on the wall to steady myself. What had Owen found? What was he searching for before he died? How was it possible for a straight alley to start and end at the same place? Large gouts of mist shot from my mouth as my chest heaved. There was something unnatural about this place, something wrong in the air. I felt strange grooves under my hand as I pushed on the wall to straighten up. Someone, or something, had carved a series of strange symbols on the wall. Now I know where Owen had gotten those scribbled hieroglyphics from. He'd seen them, too. He must have been trying to decipher it like some code. Typical for him. I cast a final look straight down the strange empty alley. The girl was still nowhere to be seen. I left the strangest of the alley behind me as I made my way back to my car. My breath misted on the cold window as I cast one final look toward that crack between buildings, that nameless space. The nameless space with the same girl staring out at me. The temperature was close to freezing outside, but I finally realized what had unnerved me about that silent tableau. All that time I was staring at her. I hadn't seen her breath mist up on the crisp evening air. What I saw that day filled up my waking moments like a creeping itch. I would find my eyes magnetically drawn to the hard plastic shell 
of my glove compartment on the slow commute to work. Owen's mysterious map and GPS skidded around within their prison like caged rats when I took turns just a little too hard, reminding me of their presence. Owen had stumbled onto something strange, and it had consumed him. I'd gone to the funeral with the expressed intention of handing over the map and the GPS to Owen's family. The empty rows in the church showed just how far he'd taken his search. No colleagues, barely any friends, the odd family member. He'd lost his job months ago, cut off almost all contact with the outside world. Owen's mother had aged a decade since I last saw her. The raw shock of her son's death replaced with a bone-deep sorrow, painfully obvious in the crinkles in the corners of her eyes, her sunken cheeks and her haunted, leaking eyes. I had whispered my commiseration, saying how sorry I was, as the truth of the map and Owen's last warning poised at the back of my throat, like a wave of bile. I choked the secrets back where they sat in my gut, swollen and sour. I had to find out more. I spent hours trying to decipher Owen's writing, looking for a pattern in the crazed scribblings. I lacked his skill with codes and systems. There was no pattern I could discern from the constellation of marked locations. No hidden message leapt out from his ravings. There was only one other thing to try. The day was cold, I remember, even for midwinter. Not a skin cold, but one that could cut through your clothes, seeped in with every breath into your lungs. A deep bone cold. I returned to the first three alleys where I'd seen the girl. I found nothing. They were totally empty, in stark contrast to the busy streets just a few yards away. It was getting dark by the time I got to the fourth point marked on the map. The crowd on the sidewalk had thinned out as the chill got deeper. Owen's handwriting was impossible to read in the weakening light. I rounded the corner and I saw another person. He could have been a brother or a twin to the girl I'd seen before. Same blonde hair, a simple fitted t-shirt, jeans barefoot on the biting cold concrete. He gave me a sardonic stare. He looked to be gnawing at something, a chicken wing or something similar, with great gusto. He stretched his mouth open to suck the last ounce of flavor off the little morsel before drawing the bleached bone from his mouth and flinging it into the distance. He grimaced as though he'd bitten into something sour, his eyes still locked with mine, he opened his mouth and rooted around with a questing finger. Finding what he'd been looking for, he hooked a huge, grayish chunk out of his mouth and delicately set it on the floor. He turned abruptly, took three deliberate steps to his right, and vanished around a turn. I rushed forward to see what he had laid on the ground, I wish I hadn't. It was a ring. Class of 06. Still slick with saliva on the outside. 
but sticky red with blood and shreds of tissue on the inside. I instinctively clutched at the identical ring I wore on my index finger. The boy hadn't been chewing on a chicken wing. He'd been chewing on Owen's finger. The smell of blood hit my nose, sharp and rich through the evening chill. My last meal rushed out of me in a flood and sat hot and steaming on the cold ground. I turned to face the small nook the boy had walked into. Nothing. Like the girl, he'd vanished. All that lay before me was a featureless dead end. No, not featureless. Something that nobody else could have seen. Nobody but Owen and me. There, in the delicate spiderweb of cracks on the concrete, drawn out in a thin black filigree on the wall, was another of the symbols from Owen's map. When does a search become an obsession? And when does that obsession burst into mania? Owen's degeneration was clear as day to me, but my own descent was far more subtle. The terrible damage of the accident had visited one final indignity on Owen and his kin. They had to pay their respects to the polished wooden veneer of a closed casket. Had it really been my dear friend in that box? There must have been a few hundred of those rings pressed out. It could have belonged to anyone in my graduating year. Yet, I knew, deep inside of me, that it had to be Owen's ring I picked up off the cold cement wet with spit and blood. My search began in earnest then. To seek out what he had found, hoping beyond reason that I would find my old friend somewhere along that path. It started innocently enough. I'd spend a free evening after work wandering the streets, following Owen's map, each location like another morsel on a trail of breadcrumbs. It was maddening. I again got the sense of a deeper pattern behind the randomness and cursed myself for being unable to see it. Each site I visited seemed to hold a piece of the puzzle. I grew adept at finding the hidden symbols in the cracks in the city. I found a set of three hidden within spray-painted tags on a wall, one more in the carefully arranged guts of a dead rat, its bowels burst and strewn about. Another, woven into the silken threads of a spider web, stretched between gray concrete and a rusty dumpster. Those hidden lanes and alleys were always deserted. It could have been lunch hour or rush hour. The streets thronged with people, and they would still be empty. I'd walk down those plain blank concrete canyons hour after hour, always feeling watched, never feeling alone. I never saw another living soul in those lanes and alleys during my search, but the hairs on the back of my neck would always rise once I stepped into one. There was a sense of something deeply wrong, something wholly unnaturally, about those empty spaces. The sudden silence would envelop me like a cocoon, the rush of voices and vehicles coming from a world away, faint like the tinny broadcast of a distant radio station. The isolation was palpable, and with the isolation came a crawling fear, a watery feeling in my guts and my legs that something or somebody was observing me. 
leading me on in my search. Then I started seeing them again. The glances were always fleeting, titillating. A glimpse of a person turning into one of those cracks in the city. Seconds before I rounded the corner, only to find myself alone in an empty alley. Or a set of footprints leading from a puddle, imprints of bare feet, like those of the boy and the girl, vanishing into the distance as the cold, dry air drank the moisture off the trail. A recently toppled trash can still rolling on the floor without any breeze to push it. I'm sure I saw the blonde girl once again. Then another girl with her dirty brown hair cut short. The boy I I saw several times, always at a distance, always fleeing from me. I'm sure there were more. My search intensified. I took time off work to visit, to visit the cracks repeatedly. The symbols practically leapt out at me from the walls and floors, screaming to be read and deciphered. My encounter with the first crack never repeated itself, but it was hardly the last oddity I experienced in the cracks. Once near midnight, I found a crack that stretched for a full city block on the map, yet I could only count 76 paces from entrance to exit. Against all rationality, it measured 76 yards within the crack, but 100 yards on all parallel routes. On yet another day, I went into one of the cracks, scanning the walls for more of those symbols when I emerged, blinking at the sudden brightness three blocks down from where I'd entered. How could a straight path have deposited me anywhere but directly opposite where I'd gone in? By this point, my search started taking its toll. I'd gone beyond the point of worrying my friends. My phone, once a source of tweets, Facebook updates, and text messages, slowly went silent. My boss had called me in and told me he was letting me go. My job would still be waiting for me if I applied again. He put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eye. I like you, he said. You've been a great worker, smart and fast. I don't know what you've been going through for the past couple of weeks, but you're not contributing anymore and I can't afford to keep you on in the state you're in now. I mumbled something vague about things being bad at home. I was too wrapped up in my obsession to care by that point. I'd gone beyond visiting and revisiting the same sites marked on Owen's map. The week before, I'd found a crack that wasn't on the map. Something new. Owen hadn't found them all. I could almost sense the shape of things, some pattern in the layout of the cracks, some waiting breakthrough in the symbols. And that's when I found him. I had a lot more time without a job. My search expanded. I found two more cracks, greedily documenting their locations and taking pictures of all the symbols I could find. And then I found a fourth. The sun was high overhead, but the light provided no warmth, like a morgue, I remember thinking, all bright and cold. I rounded a corner on a busy street, downtown. My breath caught in my throat. I felt the familiar tingle. I'd found another one. My heart leapt, but there was something else here. A few yards in, hunched over, was a man. 
a denizen of the streets from the looks of it. His tattered jacket wrapped tightly around his slight frame to keep out the biting cold. A hand poked out from his jacket, holding the zipperless front together, but I just saw two fingers clutching the dirty material. Some terrible damage had been wrought on his hand. A bandage, gummy with dried blood and pus, covered most of it. I rushed forward to speak to him, the first other real person I'd seen in my search. He perked up at the sound of my footsteps. His roomy eyes widened when he saw me. The man raised a sheet of cardboard, crudely torn from some carton or box. I expected to see something routine, a plea for spare change, or something about being willing to work, maybe even something witty. Instead... Scribbled in large, blocky letters were four words. Run. They hunt you. The rough strokes of the letters were too broad to have come from a sharpie or a pen. The ink was a rusty smear of brown, too spread out to have come from a normal writing instrument. Blood. The man had written the warning in blood. Who? I formed the question with my lips, even as the answer rang in my mind, clear as a bell. Owen's voice. The kings and queens of the city. In that moment, my eyes locked with the clear blue eyes of the wreck of a man in front of me, and the dawning realization finally hit me. Owen, sweet God in heaven, I was looking at Owen. He'd known it was me all along, of course, but he hadn't expected the look of recognition on my face. He'd opened his mouth and moaned, a wordless sound of pure anguish. His mouth, wide enough for me to see the black stump flopping around inside like a dying fish. The shock of recognition was too much for me. My knees buckled as I backpedaled, distancing myself from the ruinous vision before me. I toppled over, the resulting impact driving the air from my lungs. The world flashed white as my head met the ground with a crack. I got to my knees, wincing in pain, I raised my head, and the pain felt like a tent spike between my ears. Owen stood a few feet from me, but he wasn't alone. The blonde girl stood next to him, dwarfed by his gangly frame. She held his hand delicately, like a nurse leading the elderly and infirmed. Owen's entire demeanor had changed. Moments before, he had worn an expression of shock and anguish. All that had melted away, and there was nothing but naked fear in his eyes. He shook gently as the girl raised his ruined hand to her lips, planting a kiss on the rotted bandage over his missing fingers. No, not a kiss. I saw her lips work up and down as she sucked hungrily. When she looked up, a smear of brown covered the perfect pink bow of her lips. We're coming for you next. 
There is so very little of this one left, and there are so many of us. Her voice was clear and sharp, with just a trace of girlishness. She reached up and stroked Owen's cheek softly, smiling at me. Owen shuddered. The crotch of his jeans darkened as he lost control of his bladder. I tried to get to my feet, but the pain was blinding as the rush of blood to my head whited out my vision again. I blinked furiously, trying to clear my sight. When the world swam back into focus, both Owen and the girl were gone. I rushed forward to the spot where I'd seen him last. Nothing lingered but the faint smell of urine and fear. Like the first time I stepped into one of the cracks, a long, straight concrete canyon stretched out before me. No traces of Owen or the girl. Then the screaming started. The same sound that Owen had made earlier. A sound of pure pain and anguish torn straight from his soul. It seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere. I spun around like a madman, hoping to catch one last glimpse of my friend. He wasn't there. I put my hand against the wall to steady myself. I snapped my hand back. The wall was vibrating, humming. The screams were coming from the walls. I ran. The streets had emptied out for the evening. I'd lost track of where I was, how far I'd run. I felt like a man coming up for air, servicing from the depths of a waking dream. A stranger looked back at me from the glass facades of the shop as I walked past. An eternity ago, I was young, full of life, successful. Owen was the vagabond, the kook, the madman. Now, we were the same, he and I. Disheveled, unshaven, with one difference. I was afraid now. Afraid of what I'd become, of how far I'd fallen. Afraid of what I'd been chasing, not knowing that I was being hunted with a greater hunger than I was capable of imagining. I swallowed a scream of my own as I saw a pale face watching me in the reflection. I peeked over my shoulder. A young man stared out at me from the alley. One of them. The alley was dark. The scant street lighting made it seem like he was floating in a shadow. He beamed widely at me, his teeth white and perfect. Then he stepped backwards, and the darkness swallowed him. My pace quickened. Another alley, another crack. Two of them this time, staring out from across the street, their eyes bright with mirth and longing. Is that what Owen saw that night in the bar? Was he being hunted too? I broke into a slow jog and then into a flat-out sprint as the fear took root and grew. Owen was dead now, I was sure of it. I had squandered his first warning, and I feared that his second had come too late. I had to get home, destroy the maps like Owen said, stay away from the cracks, maybe leave town. There is nothing left here for me anyway. Only one thing remains to be done. I burnt the map, deleted all my photos, thrown out the GPS unit, anything that hints at where the cracks are. All I need to do now is leave my story, my warning, and hope that no one else follows me or sees what I've seen. My work is complete.
There are cracks in our cities, and dark things dwell within. They lie hidden like spiders, lurking within the web-like fissures, lying in wait for the unwitting, the unprepared, and the lost. And they are hungry. Thanks for joining me this week for tonight's regularly scheduled Tales of Terror. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Tonight's program has been brought to you by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly, your host, Otis Jiry. Got a scary tale of your own you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com for your chance to have me bring your sinister story to life. If you enjoyed what you heard and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment for your chance to be entered into a weekly prize drawing. Your feedback means a lot to us. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for more than 500 free audio horror stories, or the Otis Jiry channel, my own digital home away from home, where you'll find dozens of previously released horror and sci-fi stories from yours truly. If you'd like to connect with or support me and CTFDN, visit the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights Facebook page or at their website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can support our programs by becoming a patron and get access to hundreds of stories all ad-free. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with another pair of terrifying tales that'll keep you up all night. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I 
www.thepowerofpositivity.com.